Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce, The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind. But I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series, and the follow-on to that will be out in the spring, and that's called Narcissists in Divorce, From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that although I use the word divorce, these books are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap, The Mind-Bending Pull of the Great Pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com. And that web address has the doctor fully spelt out. Today, Karen and I are so pleased to be chatting to Dr. Caroline Logan. Dr. Logan is a consultant forensic clinical psychologist in the NHS and an honorary research fellow at the University of Manchester. She's co-author of the Department of Health's Guidelines in Managing Risk within the Mental Health Services and a researcher in the areas of personality disorder, psychopathy and risk. And she's published two books and many articles in these areas. Now, Caroline also trains psychologists and psychiatrists in exactly how to make robust and accurate personality disorder diagnoses. So she really is the perfect person to be talking to about all things narcissistic. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on, Caroline. It's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Caroline. So nice to meet with you. Um, I just um, wanted to start with the question. There are so many different terms. So um, psychologist, um, psychiatrist, um, psychotherapist, and so on. And I wonder if you could just help um, those listening in as to the distinction between those descriptions and quite specifically what your um, job title entails, if that's possible. That's a great question. And it's a very good one to start with because it sets the scene really well. A psychotherapist is a term that would be used for people who could be psychologists, could be psychiatrists. They may have a background in counselling. All they do is the really essential work of making people feel better about themselves and their uh, lives and make better decisions, which have maybe been disrupted by their circumstances and the way those circumstances have made them feel. So they're pure therapists. Now, I'm a psychologist. That means that a part of my role is therapeutic. But actually, over the course of my professional career, I've moved a bit more towards um, assessment evaluation. So I'm a forensic clinical psychologist. So I did an undergraduate degree in psychology and then I had a postgraduate degree in clinical psychology. I, I sidestepped and did a PhD. So I've got a research background, sort of analytical background. 
Um, and then I trained in forensic psychology. So if you look me up on the Health and Care um, Professions Council, HCPC website, I am dual registered as a clinical and forensic psychologist. These are protected titles. So I specialize, my area is personality disorder and has been for, oh my goodness me, um, oh crikey, 26 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, actually longer than that, I did my PhD looking at the ways in which personality can make people vulnerable to stress. Um, and then I did a postdoc uh, looking at personality mm-hmm. disorder and I started the postdoc in 1996. So it's been a long-standing interest. And I think primarily deep down, I'm really a psychometrician, so I measure things and I measure um, personal qualities and characteristics. That's what I that's what really excites me is trying to capture something of the essence of a person. And my my work in forensic settings means that I capture the kinds of things that tend to be relevant to understanding the harm potential of people. Mm -hmm. Um, So risk assessment and management threat assessment and management are the key ways in which I I look at personality and its relevance in, for example, criminal justice settings. Mm-hmm. So I'm a psychologist, a psychology degree of specialised. Um, a psychiatrist would have a medical degree. Mm-hmm. So they've gone down the route of uh, medical training and then post-medical training, they've specialised in psychiatry. So they've done a number of mm-hmm. different rotations, um, uh, placements around mm-hmm. different sorts of services, um, and specialised in their areas, which might be forensic psychiatry or general psychiatry or child and adolescent psychiatry, for example. So a psychiatrist got a medical background, a psychologist will have a background in um, largely um, people's behaviour, inner experiences, learning, memory, cognition, emotional expression, um, therapies. Mm-hmm. So I come from that sort of background. Um, I didn't go down the medical route because I'm extraordinarily squeamish every time I see blood. <laughs> I'm with you on that. (laughs) I'm much happier talking to people, but my focus is largely on assessment rather than therapy. I like to see how the furniture is arranged in the house rather than rearrange it. That's really helpful, Mm -hmm. isn't it? I think so many people do get confused between those terms. Oh, I know. Definitely. There's another couple of terms that I've noticed people get confused with. And I really, really think that you are the ideal person, Caroline, to help us with this one. Mm -hmm. Because I've noticed that a lot of people seem to use the term narcissist and psychopath interchangeably. Mm -hmm. What's your take on that? Oh, my goodness. I could, now you're going to have to rein me in here because I could talk about this all day. Actually, there's kind of four terms which I have heard in the same kinds of conversations that have been used interchangeably. So I'd say narcissist, pathological narcissist or narcissistic personality disorder, psychopath and sociopath. I presume you've heard sociopath banded around yeah. quite a lot. I hear those terms used quite a lot interchangeably. So if I may, right. I'll give you a, a really quick yes. um, overview of them all. Uh, now, narcissism. Now, narcissism is an extraordinarily healthy thing to have um, in moderation. Mm-hmm. So it pays us all well to be a little bit narcissistic. So if I were to come up behind you, uh, Karen, and, and slap you in the head, you should be outraged you should be indignant and leap to your feet and say how dare you because you have a healthy respect Mm -hmm. for yourself Mm -hmm. and your safety and the way in which other people should treat and refer to you if I breached that and was rude to you or or physically assaulted Mm -hmm. or threatening you um your healthy sense of your own self will leap to your defense and support you 
Mm-hmm. To protect yourself now so we all have to be a little bit narcissistic and in fact I work with quite a lot of people who have deficits in their sense of themselves in fact they they put themselves in mm-hmm. risky situations they have relationships with people who are patently unsuitable for them patently harmful patently dangerous right um, because they don't have a healthy sense of their right mm. to be treated with mm. respect mm. and care have you heard of the term echoists? That's the term that, that, uh, that we tend to use for that, the people that are on the other end of the spectrum to pathological narcissists, you know, after the myth of echo and narcissus. Of course, of course. Do you know, I haven't come across that term. I, I, I'll, I'll delve in, I'll disappear down a rabbit hole over the weekend and search that because it's, it's likely to be one I'll see more of. I think it's a great description. It is, actually. So you need to be somewhat narcissistic, not too much, um, once we start to see people having an, a, a, a more keen sense of their own self-regard, they have a, a sneaky suspicion, mm, perhaps mm. more than a sneaky suspicion that they're better than other people. That's when we start to see some problems emerge. And when a person's self-regard exceeds the regard for anybody else in the room or in life, that's when we might start to talk about a problematic level of uh, narcissism we might regard it as pathological because it causes the person and more likely the people around them uh, distress and it in fact in fact impairs the individual so when we talk about personality disorder we talk about clinically significant level of distress and impairment in the individual often with people who are narcissistic they see the fault lying with other people rather than with themselves yeah yeah Um, so they might go to a therapist for example, a psychotherapist, and say, everybody around, I'm surrounded by idiots. Mm. Um, help me to deal with those idiots. Yeah. Because they see themselves as sort of genius level uh, individual. And it's the, uh, they just can't, they're just struggling with all these fools around them. And you talk about impairment there, but do they realise that they're impaired, you know, that their lives are impaired and impacted by this? Or because, it, I mean, as you said, it's the other people around them that really sort of struggle and know that they're struggling. You know, do, does the narcissist know that they're impaired? That is that's an absolutely brilliant uh, question. Usually not. Mm. Um, what they will often, now I'm, I'm, I'm talking about they as if they were all, they, they were all the same and they're not. Um, everybody's different and everybody's different of course because their internal their inner experience is flavored by the context they're in so a narcissistic individual who's homeless for example will present themselves differently from an individual who's narcissistic and oh let's just say off the top of my head president of the united states so they're going to present quite differently because of the context and the resources around them with which they have a, well, which they have available to express themselves. Mm-hmm. So we cannot take the context and away from the person themselves. Sorry, I'm, I'm complicating things. But um, coming back to your query about are they aware? Do they know that they are different from other people? Yes, they will generally interpret that difference, though, as them being superior to other people or better than other yeah. people or stronger or more beautiful or more capable than other people, rather than I am hurting other people. This poses problems in therapy because, of course, the very nature of psychological interventions of whatever kind is to help the person see what they're like and make conscious choices to be different. 
So a lot of people who end up in therapy who've got narcissistic traits can be very threatened by mm. it. And they put up, can put up lots of defenses to protect themselves from the threat of a therapist revealing distasteful elements of themselves to themselves if that makes sense yeah absolutely so the consciousness that they have is patchy yeah yeah and sometimes we can see and we can we've got a name for it we can see some of that breakthrough realization or threat of realization is something we might refer to as narcissistic rage yes Mm. yes as when a person is confronted by imperfection yes I remember working with this chap. He had convictions for sexual offences, and, and late at night, when he was somewhat intoxicated, he walked past a, a young person, and he said hello to her, and she ignored him. Right. And that then was the impetus to um, an assault. And what had caused him to be so enraged was her ignoring him. Yeah. Is it right, Caroline, that um, kind of going on from there, if somebody really stands up to somebody who's narcissistic so perhaps quite unusually um perhaps has um has been able to call them out on the lies that they've been telling so they can perhaps prove that they're lying and will um to use the expression they busted them if you like is that going to um is that going to promote rage as well possibly yes it it quite possibly will so standing up to somebody who's pathologically narcissistic um need well i would always prepare for it so for instance let me tell you let me tell you another story if i if i may if you don't mind digressing just a quick anecdote i was feeding back to somebody who's very pathologically narcissistic and 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 forgive me for all my all my experiences with people who've committed serious offenses um which might not have direct relevance to you but i think the underlying themes i think are, mm. are the same it's just the behavioral mm. expressions might be slightly different but i was feeding back to a person that i'd, I'd see i'd known for many years but he was a person who'd committed a, a murder quite a while ago and um and he was in a secure setting and I was to assess his personality with a view to updating our understanding of it Mm. and um uh, deepening our understanding of risk so I I spent quite a long time with him he was very talkative which is a very classic thing Uh, we see in people who are pathologically narcissistic they like talking a lot they're often very dominating in conversations in a sort of um, uh, in a grandiose way, um, lots of stories that put them in a favourable light. Lots of stories about them. It's, it's more like your their audience rather than a co-conversationalist. Mm. <laughs> um, I always think in conversations, what's the balance of uh, control here? And it should be about fifty-fifty with most people. You know, some situations that would be different. And uh, with this gentleman, uh, you'd you'd struggle to get off five percent of the conversation because he just he, he hogged it so much. I assessed him and and I wrote my report mm-hmm. and I came back to him to disclose my report before I disclosed it more widely, and basically said, "Look, I'm I'm concerned about you because I still see very significant evidence of narcissistic personality disorder." He's he was aware that this was a diagnosis and also that you've never accepted treatment for it, therefore it's still present and that you've not considered the ways in which it was relevant to your harmful behaviour. It was sexually harmful behaviour, um, in particular, it was sexually motivated homicide. So there was no remorse there? 
Uh, no, no, because he just couldn't put himself in a situation where he accepted a lower version, a lesser version of himself. Mm-hmm. Having said that, what happened in that situation was he started to cry. He wept copiously um, and felt very, very vulnerable in a way that I'd never seen him look before. And I'd spent, I mean, I mean, dozens of hours with him prior to that, over many years, I have to say. Yeah. We sorted that out and I let various people know that it upset him. And um, and then I went away and then I was in his place um, a few days later. And when I walked on to this uh, setting, um, he pointed at me and uh, waggled his finger as if to come here, come here. And he said, I need to have a word with you in quite a stern tone of voice. So um, quick uh, nonverbal communication with the person in charge of this area. And I went into an interview room with him, with that person following discreetly from the outside um, went into the room and said sit down and then there was a desk and then he leaned over the desk not in a threatening way but he leaned over the desk and he said Caroline um, this is not easy for me to say he said but I I want to apologize for upsetting you the other day mm. and and what he'd done and I probed this and got him to sit down and everything was relaxed and the person went away fairly content that there was no threat there I probed and probed, and it was his recollection that I had cried. It was his recollection that I was saying these things, and I was upset about having to tell him things that I didn't believe were true, but that that the forces that be, the authorities, were making me say this. And he understood. He wanted me to know that I understood. Now, what that told me was that he had very quickly reinterpreted that memory, that experience with me, the first one where I told him, I gave him this negative feedback, he decided that couldn't be so. And so he turned it around and made it a memory that he could live with. And that's how he went about his business. That's what he did. He reinvented himself in a better form on every occasion. And anybody who disagreed with him, he he reinterpreted that if he liked them, I mean, then he quite liked me, he liked talking to me, so he couldn't possibly he couldn't possibly hurt me at that point. He just didn't. He wanted to continue to like me and reconcile what I told yeah. him with continuing to like me, and he did that by imagining I'd been made to say. Wow! So challenging somebody who's narcissistic, it's always very good pathologically narcissistic. It's always very good to bear in mind the potential for somebody to be upset or enraged um, and that they that you need to protect yourself from the potential for aggression it might be verbal criticisms or accusations but often that can die down quite quickly the person can become quite calm quite quickly as they then proceed in that reinterpretation process because it's sort of wired in, isn't it? They don't know that they're sort of consciously turning mm. the tables on it and, and sort of projecting things onto you, etc. They just do it, don't they? Because they're mm. wired to do it. It's a survival mechanism. Where do our personalities come from? Um, if any of you've got more than one child, think about how, mm. how quickly you knew that your second child was completely different from your first child. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so there is a hardwired element to it. But of course, um, and we might think of the big five personality dimensions of neuroticism, trait, worry or anxiety, extroversion, sociability, openness or creativity, agreeableness, being a sort of collaborative team player type person uh, and conscientiousness, how diligent, disciplined you can be. 
often we'll see in very young people evidence of these characteristics. Now, but what you do as a parent or as a caregiver is help the person achieve what they want without any excesses of these personality traits getting in the way. So if you've got a child who's quite anxious, then you will mirror coping with uh, anxious Mm -hmm. thoughts you will help them um, with the development of strategies to cope with it so maybe they want to go to a birthday party but there'll be children there that they don't know and they're anxious about those children so maybe you think three weeks ahead what they're going to um, what they're going to take as a present what they might wear who they might go through the door with another child for example and that helps them get to the party without their anxieties inhibiting them now, um, and and, and it, on and on it goes throughout childhood and adulthood with consistent good quality or good enough quality parenting. But when a parent has got, is distracted by other things, maybe um, I've seen this a lot in some of the people I work with, a person's maybe had a parent who's been mentally, severely mentally unwell, for example, it can be difficult for them uh, or the substance dependent or indeed mm-hmm. absent or intermittently absent. Um, it can be different for the, that, difficult for that consistent messaging to come across. And therefore, a young person grows up feeling uncertain about their ability to cope with anxious thoughts, for example, or tendency towards sociability is uncontrolled or they're undisciplined because they've not been encouraged to do homework before they go out to play, that sort of thing. So nature nurture helps develop our personalities. And personality disorders are thought to be extreme variations of normal personality traits, often in those sorts of settings where parenting might have been intermittent or problematic, but always against the genetic loading. So sometimes I've met with people who have had wonderful upbringings and they've been very disordered and the reverse. I guess that's your point then, Caroline, that a small amount of narcissism is a good thing. And um, the narcissistic personality disorder is an extreme version of that. Yes, yes. Uh And some situations will bring that out in a person. So there's a lovely paper by David Owen, the politician uh, and former uh, medic, well, practicing medic, he's obviously still a medic, but he wrote a book called In Sickness and in Power. He did. I remember that book. Yes. Um, yeah. And he wrote a little offshoot paper. I think it was, the, it was either in the Lancet or the British Medical Journal called uh, Hubris Syndrome. Right. And what he did is he picked four political figures who he felt hadn't been born or didn't show signs as a young person of having narcissistic personality disorder. But their disordered features became evident as they became more powerful in politics. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. situations bring out the best and the worst in us. And if those situations are enduring, we can um, imbibe, we can incorporate that adoration, for example, uh, into our sense of self. Yeah. If you're wondering whether your partner really is a narcissist, please do check out my online course, Is My Partner a Narcissist? Knowing for Sure. And if you want to understand narcissistic behaviours, you may be interested in my Demystifying the Narcissist online course. Both are available on drsapria.com.
So, so over even through adulthood, you could become if we're talking about um, people with pathological levels of narcissism, they could become more and more narcissistic. Yes, um, they could, because our, our personalities are thought to be quite, quite plastic. Mm. Um, up to, it's thought to be up to we're in our early to mid twenties. It's absolutely not hard and fast. Uh-huh. But our personalities, we, we spend a what's that horrible time during adolescence from when we're about 14 to 18, when we're striking out from our caregivers, usually our parents, and their expectations of us and trying to create our own personality, our own sense of self. And we try on lots of different personalities for size, <laughs> trying to be, are we this sort of person? Are we that sort of person? associating with different people to see how we feel about ourselves and then once you get to about 18 19 you start to settle a little bit more but we can see still quite a lot of variability quite a lot of situationally situations and people around a person can be quite influential in people who are in their late teens even into their early 20s until a sense of self becomes much more steady much more consistent from around that time that sees us through to to the end but um changing circumstances in life will either can exaggerate some of our traits may i take us back to the difference between pathological narcissism and psychopathy because i think this is this is really important i think so pathological narcissism if we go back to those big five personality traits and you can test yourself online um to find out where you uh, are in these traits and these are it's it's um, um there's a if you go to a website whose name is IPIP-NEO, NEO stands for Neuroticism, Extroversion and Openness. It's an online test, wow. which is actually an accumulating database, but they give you a little written report. It's not very uh, slick, but it's very um, informative. I get all my students to do it. It doesn't cost anything. When we look at the big five and we look at the kind of elemental parts of personality disorders, we see that people with pathological levels of narcissism generally have low levels of that one I mentioned, agreeableness. So they tend to be quite antagonistic, so prickly. They've often not been very well schooled in how they might be in the company of others. So they tend to be much more clumsy and, and sometimes brutal in the way in which they exercise their antagonism, they fall out with people, they, they often have a history of conflict with other people, rowing and workplace, maybe there's been complaints made against them quite regularly, that sort of thing. So we would see the elemental roots of um, pathological narcissism in low levels of agreeableness. Well, seriously low levels of agreeableness, because remember, we're talking about extreme variations of normal personality traits. With your ordinary, if there is such a thing, criminal types, we will also see that low agreeableness, but we tend also to see very low levels of conscientiousness. So they, mm-hmm. they, they lack control, the disinhibited individuals. Now, again, in the right hands, people with low levels of conscientiousness are wonderfully spontaneous, energetic people who can apply their minds. Sometimes it's a bit of an effort. Um, to concentrate for long periods of time Um, but you know some of my absolutely brilliant very well educated very influential people uh, friends are um, have got low levels of conscientiousness but in the wrong hands low levels of conscientiousness can be complete lack of focus not being able to even just sit in a classroom 
for a day, never mind completely your education with exams at the end of it. So we tend to see in, in people that I visit in prison, for example, it would be very typical mm-hmm. of me to see low levels of agreeableness, low levels of conscientiousness, they're disinhibited, they lack restraint, lack control, self-control. Now, the psychopathic individual is mm-hmm. low in agreeableness and low in conscientiousness. So they're, mo- they're like criminals, tend to see most of the psychopathic individuals I see are, are rule breakers and end up because they, they commit their offences in front of CTV cameras and all this thing. Not very wise. But uh, they tend to be really low in behavioural controls. So we will often see psychopathic individuals who are behind bars or who are in mm-hmm. trouble with the law or with HR processes or whatever so they 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 break the law uh, consistently people who are not pathologically narcissistic um may break the law less often or get away with it more <laughs> because they they don't have the problems with their concentration with their discipline so the difference there, then, you're saying, is that whilst they can both narcissists and psychopaths can be low in yeah. agreeableness, yeah. Um, narcissists tend to be higher in conscientiousness, and so can get things done and be generally they're less important. Yeah. They can get things done more effectively, whereas psychopaths are more dysregulated. And it yes, yes, exactly. I, I think uh, it's not necessarily the case that a pathologically narcissistic individual will be high in conscientiousness. It will just have average levels of conscientiousness or an, a normal distribution of. Now that that leads to some confusion because sometimes a person could be described as having narcissistic personality disorder and being a psychopath. And and what the person's probably picking up on is that elemental part of antagonism. That, that underlying theme, we see that a lot in individuals. It's kind of difficult. To, so I see people in prison who, this is the first um, criminal conviction, they're age 50, let's say, in the 50s, and they've evaded um, detection. They've been, they've been doing criminal things, breaking the rules, maybe let's say fraud for many years. Um, and I might describe them as being narcissist, pathologically narcissistic. I might see another person in their 50s who's been criminal all their lives, uh, lots of criminal um, convictions, sentences, and I might describe that person as psychopathic. They've got a comparable level of yes. grandiose sense of self-worth, but the, the psychopath would mm-hmm. be the one with more criminal convictions, more behavioural yeah. problems. Yeah. What about charm? Where does charm feature in all of this? Charm. Now, this is uh, uh, um, absolutely decisive in our thinking about the person who's psychopathic in fact it's a diagnostic feature glib superficial charm john ronson he wrote a book now it would have been about five or six years ago maybe a little longer called the psychopath yeah that's a great book if you want to get up to speed psychopathy 101 then that's a great place and a very engaging place to start And, and he'll tell you about the classic test we have of um, people who are psychopathic and that's the hair psychopathy checklist now that's a bit problematic in family law because it's largely about the behavior of people who are criminals so largely it's very sensitive it's a good ruler of the behavior of criminal psychopaths um, which sometimes is, are not so very prevalent in other settings but the here's psychopathy checklist is the very first item is um, grandiose sent- uh, sorry, glib superficial charm. 
secondary. So I don't understand where that fits, though, with the low being low in agreeableness. So if you're low in agreeable, how can you be charming if you're low in? Because it's an act. Oh, I see. Oh, you're saying that the charm is an act. Why is it an act? To manipulate the other person. So actually, they're low in agreeableness, but they're they're putting the charm on. In right, I see. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. It doesn't last. It won't last. See, a, a genuinely charming person, like I, I, I don't, I don't, I've never met Nelson Mandela, but everything I've ever, or even a Barry Cryer, who've been reading, or, uh, uh, unfortunately, reading obituaries about him, and 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 these are true people, for whom mm. only lovely things mm. are said. So these people mm. are truly charming. They're truly, I mean, the, the, the graciousness with which I went on Twitter last night and looked at what people were saying about Barry Clare. Um, I met him on a train once, and he was absolutely charming to me, but in a very genuine way, by the sounds of it, because he seems to have been charming and, and genuinely charming to everybody. What we see in people we might describe as psychopathic, I'll come back to pathological narcissists in a moment, what we definitely see in people who are psychopathic is that charm being switched on mm. Uh, it can sometimes be switched on for quite a while, mm. but it's only superficial. It's there for a purpose, and the purpose is generally exploitative. Now, that could be because you've got something that I want, or you would make me look good if I lured you into a relationship with me, for example, because you are, you are wealthy, you are very attractive, you are very well connected. So um, we can often see that charm being switched on. There's, a, there's an excellent, I'd recommend the podcast, not the drama that was made of it. The podcast is outstanding, I think. It's called Dirty John. And a very intelligent woman talking about having been duped by this man who was referred to as Dirty John, who made out that he was a surgeon. It's an outstanding podcast. And that's what he did. He charmed her. He got behind her natural defences, got behind her sense of herself. This is what we often look for, empathy. You mentioned empathy earlier on. And what we can differentiate between is cognitive empathy and emotional empathy. Now, my thinking, and I, I, as I say, I, I, I'd never met, obviously never met Nelson Mandela and I had the briefest of conversations with Barry Cryer on the train. Um, but what I got a sense, I get a sense from both of them is they had emotional empathy. They could, they could feel what it was like to be in your shoes, to walk in your shoes. If you've got children and your child falls and you, you wince because you know they've, they've landed on their poor old knee and they're, they're crying because their knee hurts. And you can feel it. I, 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 don't, I don't have children, but I watch those programmes like mm. you've been mm. framed. Mm. And you're wincing. I can't actually watch it. I remember just trying to watch that. And that's, that's one of the things I can't. And I also find it very difficult to watch the news. I kind of get um, sideswiped by my sort of empathy. Yes, exactly. And that's a very, very, very good thing. Um, sometimes you can be too empathic and your mood can suffer because there's just too much bad news on the television. And your empathy radar is just in overdrive and it wears you out and distresses you. But nonetheless, it's good to have that because what that is is a barrier, a barrier to acting hurtfully towards other people. The, the person we would describe as psychopathic lacks that either wholly or substantially. They may be able to grasp empathic feelings for a little bit of time, but then they, they're a little bit like the fellow I mentioned earlier, they can pack it away. Mm, mm. But what they do have 
is cognitive empathy what they often have is cognitive empathy some people are not very smart but um but they can often read what it is you need press that button I'm mixing my metaphors here um read what it is you want so I, I might want my narcissistic sneers I like to be I like to be um regarded as a competent person so if somebody said to me oh Carolyn you're so good at what you do I'd be like oh thank you very much you're a very good person you're a very clever person because you've read me right yeah yeah but actually you could just be duping mm-hmm. me but people who are psychopathic they, they don't completely lack empathy because often their cognitive empathy, their ability to understand what it is you need in order that they can exploit it is often very finely attuned. So charm is a very, um, it's, a, it's a very classic feature of the person who's uh, psychopathic. It may be there in the individual who's pathologically narcissistic, and we might see some similarities with its being used in order to get something from another person. My brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out now. For more information and online courses about narcissism, please do check out my websites, thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com.